Almost, Book Two, Part Two. Wendy's Baby Hunger. Wendy wanted a baby, and this was a terrifying thing. Wendy had never really thought of babies. Her vagina was one way. She never had any pets. She did not care to hold puppies. She was not sentimental. Due to his status as a married student, Reginald had managed to get a small flat in the graduate student's building. He and Wendy had moved in together, and there was much sex. There was sex and missed classes, missed deadlines, missed food. There was sex and hiding under little tents of blankets. There was sex and groaning jokes about re-rising penises. Reginald was erased by sex. Wendy was not. Wendy knew how to manage desire. Reginald lost himself in his orgasms, her flesh, the darkness, the mix of slapping sweat. He pinched his thighs, feeling the need to restore some kind of circulation. He tasted her vagina over lunch, her essence mixed with his food, and he lost himself. He lost his friends. He lost his family. He was only for Wendy, and everything was perfect and beautiful. He told her things about himself. He wept. He grieved. He curled into a fetal position like a wet worm under hard rain. He begged her forgiveness for things long lost, long past. He felt joy for the first time in his life. He probed his joy like a child's hand explores a dark hole. He thought that he would get lost in it, that it would close behind him and trap him in wet airlessness. He went in and came out quickly, dizzy, half-blinded. He could not think. He felt lost to daydreams. He felt sudden rage at Ruth, Tom, at everyone who had, surely for selfish reasons of their own, denied him this pleasure beforehand. He thanked God for his running, thanked him with clasped hands and teary eyes, for if I had not been running, this angel might never have seen me from that broken balcony. He was strangely uncurious about his wife. Every time she told him something surprising, he replied that he had expected it or knew it already. He loved the idea that he knew everything about her. It made her more beautiful, their union more perfect. His schoolwork slipped. His thesis advisor smiled and warned him that honeymoon was two words you start with sweet and end with depression. There was good reason for that, but it seemed cruel to say it to puncture such bursting ecstasy. As the weeks wore on, Reginald began to wear out. He became snappish. He became terrified that he was going to lose everything, his wife, his career, his soul. All commitments terrified him. He stopped sleeping. He would stare at Wendy asleep beside him and feel anger. You want to take away everything that I am. It is a kind of witchery. You will not rest until you have consumed me entire, until nothing is left, less than nothing, just what you want, nothing of me. And you sleep, so innocent, knowing nothing of what you are up to. 
and he would be in tears, and he would rub his face too hard, leaving red welts from his wedding band. He felt that she did not understand him, but merely placated and manipulated him. He would recognize the irrationality of these thoughts and waged a pitched, terrible battle against his fears and rages. He reasoned with them, pleaded with them, begged them not to take away his love. But they came back like bees in an endless dream. He could not fight them, or run, or accept them. He became more than tense. He became cold glass, a fragile toy tossed between teasing children. He tried to stroke and soothe himself with shaking hands. But I have not changed, he thought, struggling madly to understand, to stave off. I have not changed, but everything I feel is changing. He felt that he was sliding down a snowy cliff, losing fingernails, fingers. What is happening to me? What the hell are you doing to me, Wendy? Why do you never speak of your past? Why do you take so long to respond to questions? Why have you stopped asking me about myself? Why am I doing all the work, coming up with conversations, bridging all possible gaps in understanding? Why do you sit there and work on your goddamned cuticles while I wait in agony for a torch-enclosing devil? Why can you not see me for what I am? I have never lied to you, but you remain unable to see the truth. Why have you lost interest in me so quickly, so completely, so soon? What am I here for? What are you doing here? What sick joke keeps placing us in the same room at the same time forevermore? When we chose each other, what did we know? We only knew what we wanted. It was all fantasy. But I want the truth. I want the truth and you just sit there doing your fucking nails. How strange it was to be sitting there, his hands clenched, his heart pounding, while a clock ticked slowly, and Wendy's pucker swung from side to side as she filed her nails. Reginald felt a tension that was close to going mad. I shall end up in a little room like my mother, and Tom will come and mop my brow, and I shall weep and clutch him. Ugh! He cried out in the prison of his thoughts. He could not sit still any more. He almost jumped up. What, dear? smiled Wendy. Sit on a pin. Reginald stared at her. Can she not see the rage? he wondered. He did not know which was more terrifying, that she did not see the rage, or that she saw it but smiled anyway. Either way. I'm going out, he said, wanting to punish her. It's... Wendy glanced at the clock. A quarter of eleven. Why does she say a quarter of, he demanded of himself. A quarter of eleven is less than three. Say, like every other sane human being on the planet, quarter to eleven, quarter to, quarter to. Something of this raging chorus passed between them. At last. She glanced down, a tiny hinting scowl knitting at her features. You are in an odd mood. Odd, he said, smiling tightly. There was a pause. So if you're going to go, go, said Wendy. She does not care if I go, if I stay. Now who is punishing whom? Reginald whirled on his feet and stalked towards the door. Reginald Spencer, she cried suddenly, her voice taut. 
She cares, he thought, in little triumph, pausing at the door. If you are going to storm out of here for reasons of your own, said Wendy, you are free to do so, but at least be civil enough to wish me good night. In his chest, Talon seemed to be tearing at his ribcage at his hammering heart. Reginald wished that they would either withdraw or find their final mark. But he could say nothing, nothing except good night. He dressed quickly, feeling that his wife was staring at him in scorn through the very floor. He wants to go, he imagined her thinking scornfully, but still he dawdles, trying to make some obscure point. As he buttoned his waistcoat, Reginald thought of a short article he had seen in Punch, something about storming out of a fight with your wife but leaving your pipe behind on the mantelpiece and what you could do. The final picture of a man standing hesitantly outside the door, pausing for futile effect, drove him almost mad, and he broke a button. He cursed viciously under his breath, wishing he were a thousand miles away, hacking at vines in a Burmese jungle. As he went downstairs, Reginald wondered how to pass his wife on the way out. The hallway went past the living room where she still sat, probably working on her toenails now to make some obscure point, I'm sure. If I pass by without greeting her, I shall be chastised, but if I greet her, she will return the greeting in such a lacklustre and critical manner that I shall be struck down in my steps. I could nod, yes, that's it. I could nod and say later, if she says I did not greet her, that I nodded, and thought that she saw I nodded, and she will have no proof, no proof, but only suspicion. But as he passed by the living room, and prepared to nod, Reginald saw that the chair she had been sitting in was empty, and he felt a sudden awful stab of abandonment, and more rage, of course. He walked for a few minutes. The air was cool. There were sodden leaves underfoot. A low fog softened the treetops, scaling up the branches in a fading haze. It was like looking at night after swimming in a public pool. Beamed shadows cut through the trees as he passed under the street lamps. There were very few people about. Reginald had always loved the clack of his heels against pavement as he walked. It seemed to make the swing of his hips imperious, commanding. I stride the world, he thought. He imagined how he looked striding along and swung his umbrella jauntily. Young man marching forth to great things. He imagined his image, but could only picture it as an advertisement, two-dimensional, monochromatic. He could not lift himself out of the flatness. After walking for about fifteen more minutes, Reginald wandered over to the student pub. They would be closing in about forty-five minutes. Reginald hated arriving anywhere alone. He wanted to explain to everyone who saw him coming in, who saw him sitting alone, that he had many friends, but they were all busy at that time, or that he really liked his own company and had come for a quiet drink to think over something important, or that he had just come from a date. No, he was married now. He clutched at his finger, feeling the hard band, how inflexible it was compared with the soft underbelly of his finger. No, you are married now, Reggie boy. Now, when you come for a drink, everyone knows you have had a fight with your wife. Reginald scowled. How dare people imagine that they know anything about me? 
How dare people jump to conclusions about my life, my motivations, my purpose. Goddamned insolence. His teeth were almost grinding together when he opened the wooden door to the student pub. It was a place which seemed to be perpetually smoky. All colours were faded. The signs advertising beer only appeared colourless through the blue-grey air. An old and ragged Union Jack from some 18th century ship manned by Oxford men hung on the wall. Everyone at Oxford hated the Duke of Wellington's statement that the Battle of Waterloo had been won on the playing fields of Eton. They had endless statistics proving that many more Oxford men had given their lives for king and country than those civil servant pansies out at Eton. Their argument was that Etonians generally fought the natives of the empire, scarcely a challenging business, and that Oxford men took on the greater challenges of European and Slavic armies. Reginald walked towards the bar. He was weighing an option. Should I order a pitcher and two glasses? That way anyone coming in will think that I am drinking with a friend who was either in the toilet or had to leave suddenly. But that will mean that people who stay for the whole course of the next 45 minutes will think that I believe I have an imaginary friend. It's all right, he's driving, they'll imagine me slurring, waving at an empty chair. Reginald shuddered, that was no good. He ordered a half pint of lager. That way, people will know that I am not planning on staying long, that I had a slight desire for a wee snort. He liked lime and lager, but only had the courage to ask for it occasionally if he was sitting with a woman. It was a girly drink. Shandy was out of the question, at least until he had teenage children. Reginald took his drink to one of the tables. He didn't like how he felt the same size in relation to the table as when he had first arrived at Oxford. There ought to be a separate pub for graduate students, he thought. It's not enough to just have separate residences. That's not obvious here. As a recompense, he assumed his world-weary, cynical, and slightly amused graduate school expression. He smiled at a table of undergraduates with their silly drinking games and hoped that someone, anyone, would notice how wistful and wise he looked. Reginald? boomed a voice. What's an old married man doing at a student bar, eh? Had a fight with the wife? Reginald turned and saw Frederick Egerton, who was a tall, wide man of twenty-eight, with a most illustrious line behind him and a staggering future ahead of him. Frederick Egerton was prematurely balding, but never sweated. His high forehead seemed to be as dry and featureless as an off-white egg. His hair was just retreating over the horizon of his skull, and he had, regretfully, just that week given up trying to style it. Now it grew long and backwards, like lengthy black threads over a baby's bottom. Secretly, Frederick could not wait until he got some grey around his temples, which would, he hoped, make up for the hair loss. Soon, most of his friends would join him, and they would all be equal. The waiting was hard. Frederick had two odd obsessions. Well, only one was odd. The odd one was that he could not allow a car to pass him in the street without turning to count the number of exhaust pipes it had. He had tried, on occasion, to alter this habit. It was impossible. If he let a car pass by without checking its rear, he felt acutely uncomfortable for some hours, and it seemed quite odd for a man of his bulk to be running around a corner to find and scan the car he had let go past. The rules of this obsession were quite complex. 
He could let a car pass him if he did not look at it directly. He could, for instance, take a taxi and bury his face in a newspaper. As long as his eyes did not catch a car, he could let it go. But if he did, it was a disaster because it was often hard to see a car's exhaust in traffic. At first, reflected cars did not count, but now they did. Originally, he thought that they were not real cars, just beams of bouncing light. But then he began to experience his sharp discomfort, even after seeing reflected cars, and he had to regretfully include them. This made things more complicated, for when he had to look across the street, he could no longer use shop windows. He hated shielding his view of the cars with his hands, so he would often use a newspaper, pretending to check something in the text at eye height, and steal a glance across the road. This was a most delicate operation. If he saw the wide, glossy roofs of cars, he could spend 15 minutes checking the exhausts of each one. His other obsession was an interest common to all balding men, the state of other men's hair. This was the first puncturing of his own sense of justice. He saw men with thick, lustrous hair and imagined that life could, really, do nothing to hurt them. They may be broke, abandoned, living on rainwater, but they could still stand over a puddle and run their fingers through their thick hair. Even with mites, it is more attractive than my own. He hated men with great hair. He hated them and pitied and hated himself. He felt himself deferring to them, laughing too loud, nodding too quickly, and hated himself for his obsequience. He wanted to be their friends, to buy them hair care products. And in drugstores, he would sometimes wander through the aisles of hair oils and combs and imagine writing to the manufacturers, telling them that they would have a far larger market for their products if they could find some safe way to regrow hair. He also mentally calculated how much he would spend on new hair, how many pounds a month. It was surprisingly high. He also imagined the side effects which he would suffer to restore his hair. They were surprisingly painful. He drew the line at the paralysis of his writing hand, but that was quite far down the list of ailments he could live with. He dared not imagine what he would do not just to get his former hair back, but to have hair like Reginald's brother Tom. He dared not, because he started with amputation. He also imagined shaving his head and getting a tattoo of stubble where the hair was gone. This would say, I could have hair, but have chosen to shave it for non-medicinal purposes. This would indicate that he lacked vanity, which was the most he could hope for. He was an expert in the art of good lighting. If he combed his hair just so and moved a light into such and such a position and squinted, he had a hairdo. These vectors usually ran through his head when he was meeting a woman. Throughout his early twenties, during the phase of hiding the widow's peak, he would run his fingers through his frontal peninsula of hair, dragging the strands over the balding corners. It was only later, when he saw some photographs of himself, that he realized that it was rather futile. It was this knowledge that kept him clear of the dreaded comb-over, that and the fact that he had seen his father once coming out of his bath with his own comb-over hanging down over one ear like a skinned and leprous rat. Nope, short on sides and long and wispy on top. That was the only option. Frederick 
was from the nobility. He had gone hunting with the king. He was a one-time friend of Randolph Churchill, as were all of Randolph's friends. He disdained his own title. He had flirted with communism in his youth, secretly loving the stern lectures he got from every male relative over forty. He had dipped his toe into fascism. He still loved the idea of Russia. The only real after-effect of his leftist views was that he allowed himself a certain amount of proletariat heartiness. He had met Reginald in their second year. He had been drawn to Reginald because of Tom's hair, which was universally admired by those with recalcitrant follicles, even professors who sometimes even forgave his 19th century views for the sake of his lustrous mane. He had not gotten along too well with Tom, who seemed to be forever distracted, and irritated him no end with his tender eyes and trusting questions. Reggie was far more to his taste. He could never quite understand Reginald's infatuation with that strange German boy, actually. Frederick had always thought that the word strange was rather unnecessary when talking about German boys, but accepted it because Klaus also had great hair. Frederick was a fan of blonde hair, but felt that it demanded the kind of jawline which Klaus did not possess or a tight uniform and strict marching. Also, when he first met Klaus, the German had grown a beard and let his hair grow long, because otherwise he made his Jewish professors nervous. Reginald and Frederick, though, made a good couple. They were both decent-looking. Reginald was more aristocratic-looking. Frederick had a sort of lumpen proletariat heaviness, but they avoided the inevitable laurel and hardy comparisons by being relentlessly sophisticated. Well, perhaps not sophisticated. They loved nothing more than to discuss the personalities of others. They could sit for hours talking about the flaws and self-blindness of everyone around them. So-and-so had no idea how hostile he was to women. So-and-so did not know how ridiculous he appeared to others. Did so-and-so really not hear his own accent? It was like the grating of rock and rock. Oh, and so-and-so and his goddamned supposed sense of humor. He was about as funny as gout. And did so-and-so really imagine that he was impressing everyone with stories of his endless travels, really? It was indecent to see such insecurity, to have one's face rubbed in it. And so-and-so, with all his drawling and cigarette holders, did he really think that anyone believed his stories of womanizing? It wasn't possible. It was laughable. And so-and-so... Did he imagine that we think he really speaks all those obscure, untestable languages? Ha! They could spend hours in this manner, their voices in scorn mounting with their caffeine intake. And if they were in their rooms, something quite odd would happen to their wandering hands. They would creep over their own bodies, over their own exposed flesh, seeking little pimples and blackheads and squeezing, removing, poking and scratching. Pink crabs in search of food, each man disgusting to the other, unable to stop talking, unable to get up and leave. It was quite a comfort talking in this way. They felt that their own personalities seemed to knit together as their words flowed in a way which never seemed to happen when they were silent or alone. Frederick had had a few depressing 
affairs with drab women who dressed nervously and rapidly after intercourse, hoping to hide their flesh from his eyes, although they had surrendered it to his hands. They rarely talked again, but saw each other, lacking the energy or attention or respect to avoid each other. Frederick always recoiled from some sort of need in the eyes of these women. He imagined that they might want to get married and laughed inside. Marry me after that? What sort of man do they think I am? Frederick had left Oxford in the spring of 1932 after completing his degree in history with a minor in economics. He had gone on a short pan-European trip, but had found that he did not enjoy scorning things nearly as much when he was alone. He had tried to lure other cynical young men into his circle, but found that in places where his own nobility had little weight, he held little attraction to others. So he had come scuttling back to England, where his father had sat him down for a long father-son chat. The conclusion had been that Frederick had been forced to apply for a position in the Foreign Office. He had a good understanding of the facts of history and theories of economics, and had decided on the FO because it was a sleepy centre which suited his lack of ambition. The FO dealt with European relations, which were fairly quiet. There was a disarmament conference in Geneva, wherein Germany was pressing France and England to disarm, according to promises in the Versailles Treaty. There were a number of disputes over tariffs, which had been raised in response to the Depression. Diplomatic relations with France were shaky. England had as yet no policy regarding the new dictator nations. But nothing was looming, nothing earth-shaking. Certainly there was no prospect of war, and that was really the only time the FO became a fast-paced place. Given the lack of applicants for FO positions, the most able tended to go into politics proper or business, they were happy to have an Oxford man. Frederick got the position of under-secretary to the French ambassador and set about polishing up his indifferent French. There were a number of positions opening up as men in their 60s retired. There were few applicants. After seeing the walking abortion, one of Frederick's favorite phrases, who became the assistant to the Czechoslovak ambassador, Frederick decided to take the matter into his own hands. He came up to Oxford and ran into Reginald. So how the hell are you? He boomed, levering himself into the wooden chair opposite Reginald. Thank God I didn't get the second glass, thought Reginald, or I would be open to all sorts of embarrassing questions. I am quite well, he said. How's the wife? Frederick winked. Or is it a bad time to ask about her? No, she's fine, scowled Reginald. Excellent! Splendid! Frederick wiped the back of the table with the edge of his hand, shook the excess water off, then set down his glass of port. And do you know why I'm here? I never liked your guessing games when we were here together, said Reginald. You are such a spoilsport, said Frederick, pretending to pout. So you graduate this year, right? Yes, from my master's. And then? And then? I don't know. Depends on children. We have. I work. We don't. I PhD. And where do things stand in regard to ploughing that field, so to speak? Don't know. You are quite monosyllabic this evening, grinned Frederick. Reginald was slightly irritated at his friend's tone. And you? Why are you back? he asked, then added, 
tonight, since that is a word with more than one syllable. You know, it's impossible to describe words with one syllable without using words with more than one syllable. The Pollies have quite cornered the market. It's most unfair. Quite. Frederick took a delicate sip of his port, his paw-like hand reaching almost all the way around the glass. I am here, mon ami, to pillage Oxford for the F.O. Hmm, Sir Reginald, what are you looking for? All junior, but with potential. Most of the European countries, assistance, but to elderly diplomats in shaky health. Perfect for a resolute hamlet. Your speech has become slightly more formal, noted Reginald, taking a sip of beer. Yes, it has, laughed Frederick, pretending to lisp. Occupational hazard. Reginald smiled. And you used to have a good sense of humor. Frederick looked genuinely hurt for a moment, then shrugged it off. Interested? Reginald wrinkled his nose. Bit of a dusty corner, isn't it? Perhaps, but I think it's going to have a future. How so? Well, protectionism is all the rage right now. We have some fascinating problems in the area of tariff negotiations. He laughed at Reginald's expression. All right, perhaps not fascinating, but of interest to a great many people important. And there is instability in Germany at the moment. Who knows where that's going to go? The disarmament conference, lots of juicy stuff. Hmm. What are you working on? I'm helping my diplomat, and they are yours, like pets, to find common ground with France about Versailles. How to let Germany off the hook with honor to all. We don't want the French going in again. And I'm working on getting us out of some of our continental obligations, all those little landmines that blew up in 1914. You are? asked Reginald skeptically. Well, that's more of a hobby, admitted Frederick. But I'm going to propose it. If the disarmament conference works out, it'll just be trade agreements. And the Empire, of course. Reginald shrugged. That's all unraveling anyway. It won't be any fun watching self-rule turn loose in India. History might not be kind. Don't you believe in self-rule anymore? Of course I do. But we've warped the Indians. They'll be like first years at the keg. They'll be fine, said Frederick, in the annoying tone of finality which Reginald had almost forgotten. I mean, you can go straight into another ministry, but they're pretty hard to get into these days. Lots of graduates looking for places to hide. And so, what if you want to go into politics later? Better a good position at the F.O. than something dismal at trade or health. Well, I could stay here, get my doctorate. Sure, but that has its risks. PhDs are having a tough time as it is. Everyone thinks they're overqualified. And I don't have to tell you that they're pretty insufferable. Put a PhD in some junior position, he's poison. And it might not be better in a couple of years. Frederick pursed his lips. But it's up to you. If we decide to have kids, I'll give you a call. They were kicked out of the student pub shortly after that, and they went back to the little hotel that Frederick was staying at and chatted for another hour or so. They discussed the current fates and disappointed expectations of almost every classmate. It was most pleasurable. As Frederick began yawning heavily, Reginald rarely got tired before going to bed, Reginald began to feel uneasy. Well, I'll have to be going home now, he thought, back to sleep in the pit of vipers. He imagined Wendy waiting up for him in a ragged proletariat nightgown, tapping a rolling pin, and almost laughed. 
They agreed to meet for lunch the next day, both slightly reluctantly, and Reginald walked slowly home. Oh, God, he thought, seeing a light in the bedroom through the side window. She's still up. He puttered and loitered in the kitchen, getting a drink, wiping his shoes. Finally he heard an agonized cry from the bedroom. Reginald! He frowned, confused. He went down the hallway. The bedroom door was open. Wendy was sitting limply on the bed, cross-legged, like a lost and tired little girl. She had their wedding album open. She raised her broken face to his. Oh, Reginald! She cried, jumping off the bed and half stumbling on her long legs to him. She clutched at him tightly. Reggie, 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 she repeated. This is exactly what I don't want. His anger warred with his pity. Neither seemed like a road he wanted to take. His wooden hand caressed her hair. Wendy wailed out something incomprehensible. Reginald's heart jumped. The fear returned, followed by... Dear God, does she have to be so histrionic? I am a bad wife, she wailed. I'm not making you happy, and that's all I want, all I think about. Shh, he said. It did not sound like it's all right. It sounded like be quiet. Reggie, at the beginning, at the beginning, she gulped into his shoulder. He could feel his shirt getting wet and hoped... It was just tears, not mucus. It was so sweet. We were, we were everything to each other. We, we are at war some, sometimes, and I don't know why, or over what, or when, how to stop. I want, I want to get back into those pictures. All right, then, he whispered, patting her back as if trying to burp her. No! She cried, making him jump again. She took a step back, holding on to his hands, almost making him topple over. It's not all right. It's not how I want us to live together. We deserved more from the courage of our beginning. My family hated me getting married in Spain. We did that for each other, but we lost each other. She dropped his hands suddenly and half turned to the wall, hugging herself. I don't want to be lost, Reginald. She whispered to the air, to nothing. Please don't let me be lost. Who on earth are you talking to? He wondered. He took a step towards her. We need some time away, perhaps. I've been grumpy. I'm tired of university. What do you think about moving to London? Wendy shook her head dismally. Another tear dropped from an eye. A low moan escaped her lips, and Reginald felt a sudden desire to strike her. Rank self-pity, screamed one of his many devils. Stop her before it's too late. His hands itched most unpleasantly. His breath came short. She collapsed heavily onto the bed, her shoulders limp, her breasts hanging forward. Reginald suddenly felt excited. All right, this might not be the most graceful transition, but let's see, let's... See. He sat down next to her. He put his arm around her, flexing his muscles, so she could feel his strength. I'm sorry if I was unkind, dear, he said. He loved that word, if. 
it pushed everything over to her side, her perceptions, her paranoia. It's not just tonight, she said in an empty voice. It's just, how much do you want me when we're not making love? His cock flickered and fell a few notches. It's an expression of love. Yeah, she murmured, and he hated the lower-class softness at the end of the word. But everything should be an expression of love. You sitting while I'm filing my nails should be an expression of love. Her voice was getting hard. Reginald's cock got soft and almost shriveled back into his torso. Running away when you don't get exactly what you want is not an expression of love, cried Wendy, wriggling out of his embrace and jumping up from the bed. She brushed back her long, dark hair. Her hands were shaking. Forget fucking me for ten minutes, Reginald, she said, her voice like sharp bricks of ice obscuring her. Forget about my looks, my body, my tits and pussy. Look at me. Just me. Just for a moment. We got married so we could fuck all right. Now we fucked. Now what? Are we going to be best friends? There was a pause. Wendy glared at him. Well? You're not interested in my replies, said Reginald, feeling far from his own skin. You could be having this fight without me. It's not a fight, said Wendy, her voice breaking again. She reached out, her hands in bottomless supplication. I just want to get through to you. By yelling? I can't find any other way, she said, suddenly exasperated. What other choice do you give me? It's either fucking or yelling. That's all you notice. How? Reginald had no idea how to finish the sentence or what he might be asking. All I ask, said Wendy slowly, is that you take a step outside yourself for five minutes. No, I'd even take three a day, just to check in with me, see how I'm doing. Not much. You don't have to obsess about me or write me poems. Just check in. She put a fist on a hip and imitated a little boy. How are you, Wendy? Why, I'm just fine, Reginald. How are you? That sort of thing. Not a lot. Don't I do that? asked Reginald, losing his own fight to refrain from responding. There's no bottom to this hole. Sometimes, with your heart a thousand miles away, I don't know where or with who. With your work, your cock, another woman? She shrugged tightly. There's no way to know. You think, said Reginald, feeling his way, that I might be unfaithful? Wendy laughed harshly, as if you had that kind of virility. Then her face softened. That's not what I mean. I just feel cold inside, unloved. She leaned over and toppled onto her side onto the bed. Looking at her profile, he almost expected her to bring a thumb to her mouth and stare emptily into space. He patted her hip, which was the closest he imagined coming to something sexy. He leaned a little closer, his brows knitted. She was staring into space. Reginald felt anger then. It was a brittle kind of anger, anger and terror. He felt as if he were a kind of champagne 
and Wendy a kind of vacuum. His soul was streaming from his skin in tiny bubbles into her void. And when it was finished, when the transfer was complete, he would be empty and she would be empty. It was like pumping petrol into deep space. Space could not be filled. What? he said, his voice cracking. He paused and then said, What do you want me to do? Love me, she moaned. Love me, love me, love me, love me. What does that look like? He asked, feeling more giddy terror, more helplessness. If it's in your heart, I'll know. She began to weep, and it was an awful sniveling type of weeping. It was like viscous liquid oozing from a broken vase. He circled his hand on her hip, getting excited again. How I would love to fuck her while she's crying, he thought, so we could wind ourselves into each other like the filaments of a rope and be complete as one unbreakable. The thought of rope led him towards the thought of tying her up. Reginald glanced at the bed, at the knobs in the four corners, and thought of Wendy's long, lithe legs spread, chafing at their confinement, her head lolling, perhaps blindfolded. Wendy seemed to sense his excitement like a thick musk in an airless room. She moaned, grabbed his hand and moved it up from her hips to her side. Reginald's heart began pounding. Could it be that... He began caressing her side in long, flowing strokes. He let the tips of his fingers roll over the sides of her left breast, just a little, a tiny, tiny bit. It could have been an accident. He was prepared to defend it as an excess of concern, an unthinking brush in the face of her extremity. But then he saw the little poke through the silk of her nightgown, the magical, chilled nipple. He suddenly imagined, cradled in the bow of her curved body, a baby suckling through the silk, and some sort of fusion of fucking and blood and milk and babies possessed him, and he felt there was something almost satanic about their bedroom tonight, as if he were being cajoled into a screwing which would produce an antichrist. And if I were, he thought with a cynical inward giggle, I should not care at all. Almost afraid to breathe, he cupped her breast fully. He held his hand there without moving, as if it were a leaking bowl. He felt the silky pucker of her nipple. She wept more openly now. With a convulsive movement which jarred him once more, she writhed up and threw herself into his arms, kissing him passionately on his face, his hair, his neck. His prick seemed unbearably hard. He wanted her so much that his throat seemed swollen, aching. He threw her back on the bed, even in the extremity of his passion. He wondered if she liked the rough Viking stuff. He lifted her nightgown up past her long, long legs. She was wearing a thick pair of underwear. Super tankers, she called them. Reginald wanted to chew through them. He ground his teeth, enraged. Fuck all these layers! He tore at them with his fingers. Wendy writhed her hips, her face obscured. He clawed her panties off in a side-to-side seesawing way, 
leaving little red lines of pressure on her thighs. He leapt off the bed and struggled out of his own clothing, almost toppling over. He left his shirt on, feeling like a pirate. Then he threw himself on her. He grabbed his penis and thrust it into her vagina. She groaned in a kind of frenzy, clutching at him, his back. She grabbed the little rolls of fat on his lower back painfully. Why is there always more pain than fat? he wondered briefly. She put her foot on his calf and raised her hips to accept his thrust. Ah, damn it! he cried as agony shot through his leg. She did not seem to hear him. Her head whipped from side to side, her eyes closed, her mind on the dark side of some moon. Reginald closed his eyes. Something crested in him. It was more than rage. It was the desire to obliterate. He wanted to fuck his wife into atoms and then open the window and let her out to wander the universe in lost and discontented fragments. He was a cold core of molten lead. He cried out. His orgasm had no warning. His head seemed wildly inflated, about to burst with dark, measureless pleasure. His body convulsed. He farted. Reginald collapsed on Wendy. She continued to moan and clutch at him, rolling her hips. She cried out as he slipped out of her. She continued to writhe and pant. What the fuck? He thought, it's over. He felt anger again, but it was deep, foggy like a shipwreck far below. He rolled off her, hoping to help her see that they were done. He almost expected her to continue having sex with the air, with ghosts, but her body subsided, and she turned and clung to him, her nails digging painfully. I love you, she gasped. I love you too, he said. Something seemed to have been solved for the moment. Reginald wondered briefly what it was. But the room was dark with devilry, and he quickly fled to sleep.